The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. today in our study of the faith of Abraham to the 18th chapter of Genesis. I will be skipping some material, not studying every paragraph as we move here, because my focus is mostly on Abraham's faith. There are other things entering the picture, especially as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah comes along in these chapters, and I'm going to just move past those things, not because they're totally unimportant, but they They don't suit the focus of what I want you to see, of this man's faith growing and responding to God. The one thing we've not mentioned that I'll mention here that happened in chapter 17 was the change. God himself revealed the change of name from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. It's a little bit obscure exactly how different the meanings of those names are but they do seem to put some additional emphasis on the idea of them being parents of a great multitude. So now listen as I read Genesis 18, 1 through 15. This is the word of our God. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought that you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed. And then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sias of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. And he then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set those Before them, and while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him, Abram and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard For the Lord, I will return to you 
at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And this is the word of God. In a recent article I read in a Christian journal, a man named Jody Morris testified saying this, quote, my brother-in-law must have shared the gospel with me a hundred times before I finally began to understand what he was saying. Because what he had said up till then from the Bible just didn't make sense in the world I had been trained in. You see, Jody Morris was raised in a large religious cult based in the western states of the United States of America, which teaches that we please God by climbing a never-ending ladder of good works, and then if we climb it successfully, we ourselves will become gods. Well, the utter simplicity of the gospel of God's sovereign grace that penetrated this man's mind made him say to his brother-in-law, wait a minute, are you telling me I don't have to do anything except repent and believe in Jesus as my Lord? Is it that simple, in other words? And hearing that the answer was yes, Jody Morris said, I laughed out loud, and I walked out the door of his house laughing out loud because obviously I knew I must do something to make myself good enough to be saved. And yet, he said, in a quiet place deep inside me, the possibility that everything I'd ever been taught might be wrong was very exhilarating to consider. And Jody Morris later did trust in the simple good news of Jesus Christ and bowed before Christ and called him his all-sufficient Savior. Today he's still laughing, but he's laughing in the wonder and the exhilaration of delighted worship in the grace of God shown to him in Christ, not in sneer or scorn. Laughter can, of course, be contagious. There are rare times when we're caught up in having such fun with a group of people and, and, and the laughter is close to the surface and running free. I was remembering, I don't know if my wife can possibly remember, I won't ask her to do it right now, but I was reading something to her from an article or a newspaper uh, one day a couple months ago which I found to be so absolutely funny that it just convulsed me in laughter. And I said, now listen to this. And I was, I was trying to read it to her, and I couldn't even read it to her because I was laughing, and I couldn't get through the whole thing. It was just so funny. I was taken away in laughter. But not all laughter, of course, is of that joyous or pleasurable kind, is it? Scripture shows us occasions of mirth that have a dark side to them, unbelieving laughter that actually sneers or scorns something, doubting the power of God to do things that he may have promised. Well, in Genesis 18, we discover Abraham and Sarah with their new names, as I mentioned a moment ago, now changed. And this name change, we're not sure entirely of its significance, but if you put it in perspective with other name changes in the Bible, think of Simon having his name changed to Peter or Saul to Paul. Those things usually occur when God is conferring some additional blessing or confirmation on a life that he's now doing a new work in these people. 
We've studied this incredible relationship between Abraham and the Most High God, as God has been called consistently in these chapters. And now, let me remind you, it's been 25 years since Abraham made his first big faith response as a pagan living in the land of Ur, way off there to the east, worshiping the moon. He was called to come to a land God would show him, and he went. He simply obeyed. That was 25 years before this time. And he's been receiving promises from God. I'm going to do this for you. There's going to be a nation. This is going to happen. One thing after another. And he's been waiting. He's been living in the gap between the promise and the reality for 25 years. Now, certainly that shows that God has long-term plans, doesn't it? He can promise things and know that it's not necessarily going to happen tomorrow, but it's going to happen. Well, now we see this issue of a son born to an elderly couple coming to a final crisis of trust in our text, and we see perhaps slightly different responses by husband and wife as we read here. I know as you look at this, you say, well, the exact circumstance these two people faced was absolutely unique. I don't know how I'm supposed to identify with this. God hasn't promised that we're having a child in our late years of life or anything like that. How do I get something out of this? How do I learn a lesson here? Well, I would tell you in advance that the challenge, as I see it, is whether we trust God in some soft, general fashion. Now, it's easy to say, oh, I trust God. It's on our money. In God we trust. Well, when you say something like that, What are you trusting in? What are you trusting him for? There's got to be some specific promise, some specific deed, some expectation that you're saying, I expect God to do this because he said it, and I'm trusting that it will happen. That's what we're getting down to today. Is God the fulfiller of his precise and specific promises in a completely trustworthy way or not? If he said he would do a thing, will he do it regardless of any obstacle in its path? Can we trust him that way? First of all, today I ask you to look at a normal man welcoming God's intimate fellowship. Most of the important things that happen in our lives happen on ordinary days, don't they? Does anybody ever, uh, you know, have a a timpani drum roll and a blare of trumpets on the day that you would meet your life partner? Here she is. It doesn't happen that way. No, you just show up at a college class or something, and there's a rather attractive young lady down the row, and you think, I'd like to get to know her. Never guessing what in the world that's going to lead to. Well, it was an absolutely ordinary day in the life of Abraham, we're given to believe, in 18.1, when the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord Adonai, appeared at his camp. He was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, Middle East, 120 degrees in the middle of the day. You're not doing anything very active. You do your active things in the morning and in the evening. In the middle of the day, it's siesta time. You move about as little as possible. You get in the shade. Abraham was simply dozing in the shade in the middle of the day when he looked up. 
He didn't see them coming down the road. He didn't know who they were. He had no recognition of them. But there were three men standing near his tent. He sprang to his 99-year-old feet and began to be the host that Middle Eastern custom demanded that he be. You see, in that time, of course, there was no Days Inn and there was no Denny's Restaurant or anything like that. And if you were going to have any kind of hospitality, food, rest, shelter, refreshment along a road, you depended on whoever's home you came to. And it was the pledged responsibility of every homeowner to provide rest and refreshment to travelers. And there probably were very few who violated this because they knew that someday they would be the ones on the road who would expect the same. And so you didn't get up and say, oh, who are you? What are you doing here? No, you didn't even ask that. You just said, oh, welcome. Please sit down. Here's the shade. I'll go get some water. And you see how Abraham runs to be a good host. The the emphasis is on his haste in doing this and on the excessiveness. He chose the best calf from his herd. He ran to Sarah and said, three siyas of flour. I don't know exactly how much that is, but it's a substantial amount. Bake some bread quickly. And he brought supplies that were the best that he had to refresh these people without any guess at who they were. I don't keep up real well on contemporary American music, but a song came along a number of years ago that caught my notice because I just kept hearing one line of it that haunted me. It was Bette Midler singing a song, God is watching us from a distance. Remember that song? From a distance. And that was the emphasis of the song. I, and I would hear that and I would think, okay, Bette Midler popular singer, you seem to be expressing a very popular theology of many people in America who would claim they they might be happy to have on their money, in God we trust. And their theme, their theology was, God is watching me from a distance. He's not involved up close. I don't look to him day to day to direct things. I don't believe he engineers things in my daily life. He's out there somewhere in the great somewhere, but it's always a distance. Well, it wasn't God at a distance that Abraham was dealing with here. This is one of those mystery passages of the Old Testament that we call, the theologian would call a theophany, a God appearance. Yes, we're told three men stood near the tent. But it's very apparent quickly in this conversation as these people are being addressed and then with things that the individuals say that these are not three mere human strangers. Because, in fact, that Hebrew word Adonai designates one of them as the term used exclusively for God. God was the spokesman through one of these individuals who was here. You could say this was the day God came to dinner. God's man welcomed the Lord into intimate fellowship at his tent. Now, there are other mystery occasions like this in the Bible. You might think of Jacob wrestling 
with the angel in the form of a man at night that's so mysterious there and, and then speaking to him and the exchange is like an exchange with God. And how do we say who this, who this person was that Jacob wrestled with? These theophanies occasionally occur in the Bible and, and it's left mysterious. It's not settled for us. But just that this is an encounter with the revelation of God. Hebrews 13.2 looks back on this from the vantage point of the New Testament and makes this pronouncement, this little warning. It is speaking about this incident in Genesis 18 when it says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so, some have entertained angels unaware of it. Well, maybe when you hear that, you say, well, nothing like that is ever going to happen to me. I don't expect God to come and speak to me in my everyday life and, and that I would know that this is an angel or the angel of the Lord, my life just doesn't go that way. But aren't there times when without warning, without expectation, you do know in your life that the Lord is brushing past you? If you have that good habit, which I hope you have, of spending some minimal time in the Word of God on a daily or regular basis, Aren't there those days when you read something and with no warning of it, a text seems to almost leap off the page and grab you and squeeze you and pierce you and, and you say, Lord, is this your message to me? Why does this arrest me so? This must be God speaking, flooding me with peace or convicting me or comforting me. We too have times when we must welcome the intimate fellowship of the Lord, and I'll say more on that before I finish. In the second place, Genesis 18 is about hearing God's premier promise. There's a very focused prophecy that's quite important in this text, and it comes in such a way that the one speaking it makes it plain that he is someone remarkable to be able to speak this. Now, there's a clue, first of all, in verse 9, when the strangers are receiving the meal and they're continuing their conversation, and in a typical way, it was the husband that dealt with them. The wife stayed out of sight, and she apparently is in the tent, if you can picture this. She's nearby. She can hear what's being said, but they don't see her. And the spokesman of the three says, where is your wife, Sarah? Now, I rather imagine that something like an electric current went through Abraham when he heard that, because if you had looked back and seen that it was by a revelation of God in the previous chapter that Abraham was told, your name is now Abraham and your wife's name is now Sarah. This is like tripping a password. You know, you have these complicated passwords for your computer access and so on these days, and and it's supposed to be that only you know it. Abraham heard his wife's new name that wasn't known to the world at large spoken. Where is Sarah? And his mind came alive. How does this person know that's my wife's name? And that was alerting him, I think, for what would come next in verse 10, because here's the important prophecy. As the Lord, Adonai, said this, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, if you haven't been with us and you haven't put together in your mind the whole progress of all the different things that have been revealed to Abraham, let me just quickly 
rehearse it because this is the last and capstone prophecy in a whole series of things that he's been asked to believe up till now. If you went back to chapter 12, he was told, go to a land I'll show you. You'll know it when you get there. I will tell you, and that's where I want you to be. He got up, he went. Now, that was a very broad general promise. He obeyed. Chapter 13, the revelation came a little more specific. An offspring of yours is going to lead to a great nation that will have this vast land, as far as you can see from a mountaintop. Okay, the problem's getting, or the promise is getting more specific. I think if you could picture a, a diagram in your mind, it would be like a spiral that starts out as a big circle and goes around and, and then gets smaller and then keeps going inward and keeps going inward and keeps going inward until it's, it's at a point at the middle. That's what these promises are like. Very big promise, go somewhere, a little bit narrower promise, you're going to be head of a great nation and this land will be yours. Then another promise, Part of the promise, it's all going to depend on a son coming from your body. That's more specific. But he still didn't have the whole message. You remember how in verse chapter 16, uh, he thought maybe the son could come from his body, but not Sarah's. And Hagar came in the picture, and the Lord said, no, that's not it. It will be from Sarah's body. So see now the circle's getting tighter as the promise is narrowing in. And now we've got kind of the center of the circle promise. The son will come to be born of Sarah by this time next year. That's as specific as it could be. That is concrete. That is personal. It's going to happen or else it's a foolish soothsayer's prediction. And I think Abraham understood that the divine omniscience displayed in that prediction meant this was the voice of God to him from whoever this person was sitting near his tent. There was no avoiding it now. You know, if you want to put it in a colloquial language, this person was sitting there saying, when I come next year, there'll be baby squalls from your tent and diapers on the clothesline over there. I promise it. Now, you either believe that or you call it absurd. And Abraham believed it, but someone in the tent was not so sure. And so we come thirdly to the core of the lesson today, to the moment when Sarah moves to the center stage, even though she's out of sight and not speaking, not in this conversation, she does something that we have done and many have done by her laughing at God's ultimate promise. I remember she's a 90-year-old woman. She's no fool. She knows her body. She understands that she, by any natural process, is never going to have a child again. She's settled into a melancholy state, no doubt wise in the ways of the world. She's been around the block many times. Someone who's 90, who has a good, clear mind. If you have such a person in in your family, among your relations, you say, wow, it's it's amazing what wisdom that person has and, and what they know and how sharp they are. Well, that's Sarah. She's no fool. And she's heard her husband say, God has said, we're going to have this child. You're going to have this child. And she said, oh, when is he going to stop talking about that? And now here's this visitor. She knows not who it is saying, Sarah will have the child within one year. Look what verse 12 says. Look at it carefully. It says, Sarah laughed to herself. 
Now, I checked six or eight English translations, and they're all pretty faithful to the Hebrew, that makes it clear that this is not an audible laughter. I don't think the laugh was heard. It was internal. If you could have heard it, it was, huh, are you kidding me? But you couldn't hear it because it was inside the woman's mind. It was in her spirit. No sound of mockery broke out of her mouth, and yet the visitor, however many paces away he was, heard her thoughts and her scorn. Now let me just take you back for a moment. If you look back, probably across the page in your Bible at Genesis 17, verse 17, you'll see something interesting where it's Abraham is having a, a bit earlier revelation here. This is when his name was changed, or Sarah's name was changed. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Hey, you say, Abraham laughed. So what was wrong with Sarah laughing? Well, the interesting thing is, in the context, the two chapters seem to treat this as a different kind of laughter, a different attitude. If we're reading it correctly, it seems to say that Abraham was, was stunned by the announcement, and yet he was delighted. He received it with trust and incredulity, and he said, I, I can't imagine this happening, and yet, Lord, you've said it. Praise be your name. His laughter, in other words, had hope in it. But when Sarah received it and responded in her mind silently, it was cynical, and there was no hope in it. And she was saying, how in the world does anyone expect me to believe that? And then we hear the visitor give a gentle and yet rather strong reproof to Sarah, not even speaking to her. The conversation is to her husband, but she can hear it. And the conversation has a bit of a steel edge to it. Why did your wife, Sarah, laugh? Now she speaks. <laughs> she, can't, she can't help it now. She says, I didn't laugh. And the visitor says, oh, yes, you did. And it ends there. Here's what I think all this means. Back in chapter 16, we had Hagar in the picture. You remember the rather pitiful servant girl who had to flee because of the conflict in the family? And God appeared to her, and the revelation there was that she saw God and said, I have seen the God who sees me. She realized that God was watching her, not from a distance, up close. Now Sarah needed to learn that God wasn't just seeing her, but even seeing inside of her. In Hebrews 4.13, we read, No creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sarah had to understand that God was probing her soul and showing that even her secret unbelief, her unspoken unbelief, was in his sight. He saw it. He heard it, though it had no sound to it. And he knew it for what it was, and he wanted her to face it and confess it for what it was. So that she might see that this great God, her husband Abraham, kept talking about, could read her secret thoughts. And if he could open up even her thoughts, why could he not open up her womb? 
and give this child. I think the Lord's way with Sarah was a firm and yet compassionate way. You see, he could have said, woman, I'm sick and tired of you. You haven't been believing this thing all the way along, and now here I am telling it's going to happen, and you're laughing at me. But that wasn't what he did. Rather, he was merciful and compassionate, and the Lord said, if you would stop and face what you're saying, do you really understand your unbelief can't withstand the power of God and the power of his promise? And so we come to verse 14 of our text today. Genesis 18, 14 is, is the outstanding conclusion of this text because it contains one of the great rhetorical questions of the whole Bible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now I want you to notice, you have to be careful that you, you apply this, this rhetorical question and the great statement of faith that it includes correctly. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is one of those kind of verses that you'd go in the Christian bookstore and you'd buy a plaque and put it on your kitchen wall. Genesis eighteen fourteen. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Great. That's a good verse. So you might go home and say, now I want to apply this scripture. Let me see. I'm looking at our retirement situation and seeing it doesn't look too good. Well, I want to commit it to prayer and say, Lord, I need to have $10 million in the bank when I retire. And I'm going to claim Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, do you see what you're doing? You're being very foolish. You're applying Scripture to something it doesn't apply to. Or you might say, well, hey, uh, I think I should run for president of the United States. I'm sick and tired of the way this country's being run. I'm going to put my name in there and I'm sure the Lancaster County Party would take it up and forward it, and I'll be on the ballot next year for president. And Lord, I'm going to claim Genesis 18:14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You can make me president. Well, both of those, of course, are rather absurd, but I'm trying to illustrate the fact that we can take Scripture and think that it says something's going to happen because it's something we might wish to have happen, or our foolish imagination would say, I think God should do this and nothing's too hard for God. But that is not what this is about. What this is about is the fulfillment of things that the Lord has promised He would do. Now, the Lord hasn't promised me $10 million for retirement or a future as President of the United States. Thank goodness He hasn't. Thank goodness He hasn't for either one of them, as a matter of fact. But he has promised many things. He has promised things like believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He has promised if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He has promised I will be with you always to the end of the world. You see, if I take something God has promised as a predicted prophecy, anything like what he said here in verse 10 and say, no, that's too hard, God can't do that, I'm doubting God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Anything he has promised to do, too hard? And the answer here is no. His promises cannot fail. His word is omnipotent. It rolls like a bulldozer over a cardboard building. The cardboard building might look like a huge obstacle, but here comes God's promise, and it's time of fulfillment, and the building's gone. 
there's a concluding word in Romans 4, 20 and 21 that looks back on Genesis 18, and Paul said this about Abraham. He concluded, he said, no distrust made him waver concerning a promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God and was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. You know that spiral I told you about a minute ago? He, he obeyed the, the big general promise and then a little bit more specific and then a little more specific and a little more specific. And when it got down to the center of the very specific thing, a baby from Sarah next year, Abram said, Lord, you've done every single thing you said so far. I can't see why you wouldn't do that one. You see, he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Now, if we would move from that long ago mystery visitation of the tent of Abraham and Sarah receiving divine visitors. The Scripture says, every one of you today who knows Jesus Christ as Lord of your life has had a similar visitation happen at the tent of your life. The triune God has come to visit. And it's promised, actually, that this would happen in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when Jesus said, I stand at the door of your life and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and have supper with him and he with me. And the visitor, the mystery person, Jesus Christ, who comes, does not come as a visitor to spend a brief time in conversation and then depart. He comes, the promise of the gospel says, to dwell and abide and stay. And so you too have had that intimate contact with the true and eternal God if you know Christ. And once you have met him in such an encounter of faith, it is now your duty to consider the promises that God has made, and he's given you a whole book of them. And is it an unreasonable thing that he wants you to be familiar with the things he's promised to do? So that you won't just say, oh God, I think maybe you'll do this for me, and is anything too hard for you, so you'll do this foolish thing I imagine. No. Oh God, I see that you say you'll do this. Well, surely you'll do that, because you promised. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or is it possible that you go through your life actually quietly laughing at things God says are true. I know you don't stand up in church when the preacher says this or that and say, oh, how ridiculous. I've never yet in all of my ministry had anybody stand up and disrupt. Maybe I hope I'm not giving the invitation, but somebody stand up and say, that's a lie, preacher. I've actually been in a service where that did happen. I wasn't the preacher. But, you know, I, I haven't had people do that. I've, I've never sat in a pew listening to another sermon and heard the person in front of me mutter, I don't believe that. But I know that even today there have been things said that God promises to do that you've said silently to yourself. Hmm, that'll be the day. I sure haven't seen that happen in my life. I want to ask you, what has God promised to do? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Does he say that if you've confessed your sin under the blood of the cross of Christ, that it is forgiven? Then it really is forgiven. Does he promise to be with you always to the end of the world? Then he really will be with you to the end of the world. 
Does he promise that there is sustaining grace and strength available to you to resist specific sexual temptation or other problems in your life if you will ask him for that strength? Then ask him. And stop saying, I'm powerless. I can't do it. Ask him for what he's promised to do. Our Christian lives are proving grounds for the same lesson God gave Abraham and Sarah that day at their tent. Will anything that God has promised to do by the power of His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the cross, by the power of the resurrection, by the power of His ascended glory at His Father's right hand today, if He's promised to do it for His people, are you going to tell me it's too hard for Him to accomplish it? You're a fool. You're a fool. Is anything too hard for God? No, sir. The God of Abraham and Sarah, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, promises to do hard things, and when He does, those things are as good as done, whether they take 20 years in your life, 40 years in your life, whether they take 10 centuries to accomplish in the history of Israel. The one true God will always have the last laugh. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is true, and there are many things about it that we find hard, that we say, I haven't seen that yet. I wonder how it could come. I've been waiting. I've been praying. It hasn't happened yet. Help us to cling to Your promises as to the strong superstructure of a building that cannot be shaken as to a foundation that will not tremble no matter what happens to all the earth. Thank you that you are the God of truth and the God of power. Thank you for Jesus in whom every one of the promises you ever made has their yes and amen sealed. For his sake, we ask for greater faith to trust you. Amen.